0: and chapter 15, on page 1203. We're returning to look once more at the parable of the prodigal son, or the lost son, and uh, you'll remember just to set the setting for us. In verse 1, we read that all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke this parable to them. And then he actually proceeds to give three parables which all deal, you'll remember, with the theme of lost and found. There's a lost sheep found, a lost coin found, and then finally, in verse 11, a lost son found. So let's read this parable once more. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me, So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry, for this my son was dead, and is alive again, he was lost, and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you, I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost, and is found. At the end of verse 24, we read that inside the house they began to be Mary, and at the beginning of verse 28, we read of the older brother that he was angry and would not go in. So those in the house began to be merry, but he was angry and would not go in. Now, with the Lord's help, we've looked at this parable over the past few weeks, and again, with God's help, I want to bring our study of it uh, to a close. Now, there's a way in which we could really have closed our study of this parable last time. After all, when you consider the main lesson in the parable, we could have closed it. Uh, Christ is justifying his own conduct. Uh, he's justifying the fact that he is prepared to eat and drink with those who are tax collectors and sinners, people who are lost, prodigals, people who have put themselves voluntarily out of the church, and uh, people who are left outside of the church by many people who are in it because they want nothing to do anymore with people who are tax collectors or harlots, or anything of that kind. And Christ is effectively saying to the Pharisees, well, you might find fault with my conduct in being prepared to sit and eat with them, and of course in doing so to speak with them and to bring them the good news of eternal life. But find fault if you will, but know this, that there is joy In heaven, over one of these when they repent, much more than there is over 99 people like you who see themselves just already and have no need of repentance. So, there is joy in heaven, in other words, there is joy in the heart of God Himself. The scriptures speak here and there of God rejoicing, there is joy in the heart of God, there is joy. Amongst the angels themselves, and I've no doubt that Christ means us to understand too that there is joy in the presence of the saints and joy amongst the saints who have already gone to glory, that they too rejoice with God and with the angels when a sinner, even a prodigal like this, is converted. And that's why all of these three parables end with pictures of joy. In verse 6, when the lost sheep is found, the shepherd comes home, calls together his friends and neighbors, and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons, so-called, who need no repentance. Again in verse 9, after the woman has swept to find her coin, and finds it when she has found it. She calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And again, just as we saw there in verse 24, when the son who was dead and lost is suddenly alive and found, we read that they began to be merry, and when the older son who was in the field drew near in verse 25, he heard the music and the dancing in the house. So the parables, as we've seen, give us examples of the lost being found, and when they are found, there's joy and gladness. Now that, in a sense, could have been that. And that's why I said that, in a sense, we could have closed our look at the lost son. Except the fact that that isn't that, as far as the parable is concerned. There's a kind of postscript to the third parable. The parables are more or less identical. There are subtle differences in emphasis. But you would expect them to end with the joy. This one doesn't. There's a postscript. And I think we could say that there's a sting in the tail at the end of this parable. We don't expect really the end of this parable. And I suppose if you were understanding the parables as they were being delivered, you would be quite shocked suddenly at the way in which this one turns out. Because what we have is the unexpected reappearance on the scene of the elder brother. I suppose, in a way, you might have considered him insignificant up until this point, that he just happens to be the older brother of the younger son who demands all the attention in the narrative. But lo and behold, he comes back. And when he reappears, it's obvious that he is very unhappy at the fact that his brother has returned He is very unhappy that his father has accepted him back into the household. And he complains. He complains to the father. And he complains against the father. Because he complains that the father is effectively not being fair in his dealings here. Taking back this person who had just left the house squandered everything, and suddenly he's back accepted, so much so that the fatted calf kept for a special occasion is killed for this younger brother. Now, I'm sure you've probably often heard discussions about who exactly this elder brother represents, and maybe you've taken part in such discussions too, like who is he? Who does he stand for? And, and the most common view is that he represents what we would call a, a resentful Christian. Now, it seems quite a, a shocking thing to use such an expression. There are some words that you put along with Christian that you that you shudder to put along with it. For example, a proud Christian. What is that? It's a contradiction in terms or A resentful Christian, well, again, what's that? It seems like a contradiction in terms. But there are such things. There are proud Christians, or at least Christians who are proud some of the time. There are Christians who are resentful some of the time. And this is supposed, really, this person here is supposed to represent somebody who's unhappy. A Christian is unhappy that someone else, another Christian, has got a higher profile than himself. That's a general way of looking at it. Of course, it's more specific here, but generally that that someone else whom you consider less worthy than yourself, really, in some way, less gifted, less able, less, less moral or less spiritual, that they have suddenly been given a higher profile in the church of God than yourself. Maybe, in fact, you've got such a dim view of these people because you've known them in the past. Maybe you've known a lot about their lives before they came to profess Christ. And maybe you've got such a dim view of them that you think they should have no profile at all in the church. that They should never even have been taken in to sit at the Lord's Supper. And you look at them and say, what's that person doing at the Lord's Supper? Now as I say there's no doubt that there can be resentful Christians and sometimes we can understand why they're resentful. I'm sure if we are honest we've sometimes felt it ourselves in some way or other maybe we didn't diagnose it properly. I remember before uh, sharing with you what I think is one of the best examples that I came across myself. It was an example of a woman who had suffered quite a lot at the hands of her husband. I shared this with you once, maybe twice before. She suffered a lot at the hands of her husband, and she did so to the extent that her own life really became something of a misery at many points. She struggled with depression for a long time in her life, while he just lived the kind of life that he wanted to live, almost in a constant state of drunkenness and being very unkind with it. Lo and behold, at the 11th hour, he was converted. She didn't leap for joy when she heard that. That wasn't her response. In fact, her response was a kind of resentment, that her life had been so hard at his hands, and just like that, he seems to get a ticket in when he had spent most of his life making hers miserable. Now, of course, it's easy for us to take a very high ground and say, well, that was a terrible attitude to take. And, of course, (laughs) that's right. But don't say that you can't understand it. Don't say that you can't identify with it. Maybe even you've experienced something a bit like that. There's, There's a lot of ways in which this kind of spirit can appear. Not in exactly the same way, in different ways. For example... There may be a, a person who's had a difficult experience with a, a particular church, and they may go to another church, and they suddenly find that two or three people are converted in the, in the church that they left. And they, instead of rejoicing at that, they're resentful at that. I mean, How can people be converted in that place? That, that ought not to be so. I, I cannot accept that these people are really genuinely converted in that place. It's it's the same kind of thing. Maybe even if someone is elected into an office and uh, you are not elected into the office, you can say, well, how can that person possibly have been elected into office before me? And you can say to yourself, not that I think that much of myself, but I'm certainly better than that, or I've certainly got more to offer than that, or I've been longer on the on the path than that, or whatever. Before you know where you are, you are resentful, resentful where you ought to have been rejoicing. Now, <clears throat> I'm not going to say that the parable has nothing to say about resentful Christians. In fact, I hope I've just made it plain that it does have something to say about as relevant um, to the theme of the lost son as, as the previous sermons, but still it's important to look at it and to listen carefully to what God says. Because let me say this, although it's about a Pharisee, the Christian is not a Pharisee but that doesn't mean that the spirit of the Pharisee isn't lurking around in the Christian's heart. In fact, there's nothing in the Pharisee that isn't in you and me. Nothing at all. By the grace of God, it has been conquered, but it's not expunged. And this spirit can rise in the heart. That explains, actually, why you might think that this is our resentful Christian. Because the spirit of the Pharisee is never far away as we look at it. Let's remember that. Now to guide us in in looking at the elder son, let's remember where we began with this parable. That these two sons are both in their father's house and there's nothing to distinguish them. In other words, you'll remember that the sonship being highlighted in Luke 15 is not a sonship by nature, It's not a sonship by adoption. That's the special adoption which makes a Christian a Christian. But they are sons by covenant. In other words, they have been born into God's family, the family of faith, the household of faith. Now, this is uh, an important thing, and I'm not going to dwell on this at all tonight because I did the first time that we looked at this passage. But Under the old covenant, when children were circumcised and received into the church of God, that was a big thing. It it was an important thing to be nurtured and raised within the bosom of the mother church. A vital thing. So it is today to be baptized into the household of faith. To be to be baptized into the membership of God's covenant people, because that's what we believe the Bible teaches. That is a hugely important thing. Now, the fact is that so often, when uh, we grow up with a thing like this, we we don't value it. If if you were baptized and raised in the household of God, it's possible that that for a long time in your life you never really considered how important a thing that was. Uh, how special a privilege it was to have in comparison with those who did not have it, and how solemn a thing indeed it was too, considering the fact that one day you would give an account not as someone on the outside, but as someone in the inside, someone raised in the household of God. Now, that's the key to understanding these two sons. They don't represent believers They don't represent unbelievers, they represent covenant sons born and raised in privilege and that's how we understand them. We have no idea who stands where. It's only the facts as they reveal themselves that tell us something. For example, when the younger son says, give to me my livelihood so that I can go and live as I please, then we discover what this son is like this covenantal son in heart is miles away from the father. The second son is a conundrum because we don't know anything about what he thinks or feels until the younger son comes back home. It's only then that we really know what he's like. The older son, of course, never left his father's house he just represents someone like that who's grown up in church baptized like many of ourselves and he's kept going to church all the time even when this prodigal has gone to live a riotous life he's still going to church when the communion services are on he'll go to the communion services if there are special services to be held in church he'll probably be seen there too If there's something to be done, perhaps, around the church, well, he might even lend a hand. But when you try and find out what he really thinks or feels, close job, there's nothing there. What's going on in there? We have no idea, really. He just turns up, goes away, turns up, goes away. What's going on in here? We don't know. For the benefit of those who are only hearing me, I was pointing to my head and pointing to my heart. In other words, what is he thinking and what is he feeling? We've got no window into that until, as I said, his brother comes home. At last he speaks. Back on the scene and he talks. And what he says is recorded for us in verses 29 and 30. Let's read them. And this is after his father pleads with him to come inside the house, he answers in verse 29. Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Now, what so often happens in the Bible, there's a way of reading these words that make you feel very sympathetic with this elder son. There's no doubt about that. In fact, sometimes when you read it, your heart moves and and you feel sorry for him. And when you feel that kind of emotion, you can't tell, but maybe, in spite of yourself, just feel a little bit annoyed with the younger brother. And a little bit annoyed with the father, too. Like, what about this man? He's, the younger brother takes what comes his way, no thought for the one who never left the house. And the father seems to be lavishing everybody everything on somebody and neglecting the one who seemed most deserving of it but uh, so often in the Bible you have to check yourself I remember saying recently to you that sometimes your your instinct says one thing and you have to check yourself like when Esau is crying at Isaac's feet uh, wanting a change of heart and a change of mind your heart goes out to Esau and the Bible warns you not to think of Esau like that there's more to Esau than met the eye and there was more to Esau's pleading with his father than met the eye Same is true with Ishmael. When Abraham had to take his own son Ishmael and put him out of the house along with Hagar, his mother, all your sympathy goes towards Hagar and goes towards Ishmael until the word of God corrects your perspective and tells you that there's far more wrong with Ishmael and far more wrong with Hagar than met the eye. The same thing is true here. What you've got to do is take these words as they stand on their own which seems so full of pathos. These many years I have served you, I've never transgressed your commandment and yet you never gave me, never mind a fatted calf, you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Take these words and put them in the light of the whole parable. Put them in the light of the conversation and the situation between Christ and the, par- and the Pharisees and the whole thing changes. You read the words in a different way. In other words, Christ selects these words and puts them in the mouth of this elder brother so that we can hear a Pharisee speaking. He wants us, when when we listen to the elder brother, to listen to a Pharisee and to hear a Pharisee talk. And once we look for that, we see it clearly. We see it in what he says about himself what he says about his brother, and what he says about his father. Take, first of all, what he says about himself. It's the language of self-righteousness. These many years I've been serving you, well, that's okay, I never transgressed your commandment at any time. That's not an easy claim for anybody to make. Especially when we take it into the spiritual realm. Let's say tonight, and I hope it's through by the grace of God, that you've come to know yourself a little bit. You've come to know yourself. And uh, you've come to know your own heart. And it's not maybe as good as as you once thought it was. And... You've come to think about your relationship with God in the past and in the present, and the more you do, the more that bothers you, the more that bothers you. You're all the more grateful. You're increasingly grateful for the righteousness of Christ and the provision made there for you that it clothes you absolutely in the sight of God. Why? because you know that your own righteousness is not up to the task. What bothers you especially, I suppose, as you go on in life, are your sins of omission, more than the sins of commission even. You are often plagued by what you could have done, by what you could have said, in defense of a Christian friend, in the promotion of the cause of Christ, or in defense of the honor of God, when his name was blasphemed, perhaps, omitted the things you omitted in the house, the things you omitted with your family, omission, omission, even much more than commission, commission. Which one of us would dream of saying to God tonight, never at any time, have I transgressed your commandment. Is it not even true of the natural world here? Is this son absolutely confident that he was never a cause of grief to his father? Is it true that he never disappointed his father? Does he think that he ever let his father down? Does he ever wonder if his lack of mourning for his brother ever gave distress to his father? We know that this father was not a day without being anguished about the younger brother, the younger son, and where he was. Did the father not notice that the older son couldn't care less? I'm sure he did. And I'm sure it was a grief that he kept to himself. But as far as the older son was concerned, he was no bother to his father. Just as we think by nature that we're no bother to God. Why should God be offended by my lifestyle? I I keep the commandments. I'm sure that if God would judge me at the end of the world, I could say I've never transgressed your commandments. Not really. Not really. Not in, a, not in a meaningful way. He thinks of himself as a Pharisee. The language that he uses of himself, in other words, is the language of someone who's never been broken in heart and who's never been illuminated in his mind. He's deceived about himself. Deceived. The language he uses regarding his brother is no better If the language he used about himself was self-righteous, the language he uses about his brother is censorious and judgmental. In verse 30, when he's speaking to his father, he says, as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. There's at least a couple of problems there. You'll notice how he first of all distances himself from his brother. Your son, he says. When this your son came home, why don't you just call him your own brother? Well, Because I don't want to. I don't want to. He's not worth referring to as my brother. You say that he was dead and he's alive again. I say he's dead still. I don't want to share a household with this man. You seem ecstatic that he's come home. I'm not. He may be your son, but he's not my brother. Maybe he never can be. And for that matter, if you can receive him into the house, maybe you're not really my father in the way that I thought you were my father. And that I'm not your son in the way that I thought I was your son. It's a terrible distance he puts between himself and his brother. I mean, we would think that if people were really brethren, they would receive each other. And whatever went wrong, I mean, you know yourself what it's like when a Christian does go astray. And maybe they go astray sometimes so far that that you wonder what they were. But when they come back, your heart is full of joy, really, is it not ordinarily? When they come back to the house of God, perhaps there are tears on their face as they're hearing the word, and as they come again to the communion and take it as a broken, repentant people. I mean, what a wonderful thing it is. And here's this man saying, I don't want to know. As far as I'm concerned, he's your son, but he's not my brother. And I'm surprised that he's your son, too. And as well as distancing himself from his brother, you'll notice that he actually takes his brother's sin and he paints it as black as he possibly can. This son of yours, he said, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. Well, who said so? There's no indication in the parable that there was any contact between the younger son and the father's house. And and that really follows from the circumstances anyway. These uh, publicans and sinners lived their own lives. They had their own codes and their own rules, and they weren't part of the fabric of, of God's household in that kind of way. In fact, the impression left on your mind in the parable was that this son was completely out of sight and out of hearing. Oh, thank God he wasn't out of the father's mind. Thank God for that. And many of us have a reason to be thankful to God for that, that he was not out of his father's mind and he was not out of his father's heart. But as far as day to day living goes, he was out of sight and out of hearing. As I mentioned earlier, as good as dead. But lo and behold, when he comes back, this one wants to present him as bad as good. You know what he did? this He, he's, he squandered your whole livelihood. He took what's yours and he squandered it and he did it with harlots, he said. You know, um, very often a Pharisee will put the worst construction on other people. And it's an old tactic for making yourself look better. I'm sure you've come across that in life, that uh, when somebody wants to make themselves look better, the, the easiest way to do it is to make someone else look worse. That's exactly what he's done here. He magnifies his sin and how different that is from the spirit of the Christian. Paul says, um, when he talks about love and the beauty of Christian love, he says, amongst other things, that it thinks no evil, it rejoices not in iniquity, it rejoices in the truth but it thinks no evil. In other words, it thinks the best. You don't, you don't go around putting the worst construction you can upon a thing. In fact, quite the opposite. You go around putting the best construction on a thing. And and friends, let me say that there will be countless occasions when you have the opportunity to do this in life. And you can choose to go the one way or the other. You, you can hear something about somebody You can hear a certain set of circumstances and you can think the worst or you can think the best. Your default position is to think the best. Think no evil unless you are a fool for doing so. In other words, it's not a call upon you to to be naive. We're not called to be naive. But nonetheless, we are called to be as harmless as does. So as long as it's possible for you to think well, then think well. But this man speaks, in terms of his brother, the language of censoriousness. And of course, that's one of the critical marks of a Pharisee. They are always good at playing the I'm better than you game. And then again, well, that's so in regard to themselves, self-righteous. In regard to brothers, censorious. But you'll notice in regard to God, too, notice his language. It's resentful. In verse 30, well, in verse 29 too. At the end of verse 29, you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. And at the end of verse 30, you've killed the fatted calf for him. No fuss about me. No goat for me. Do you not get the sense that this man's religion is a joyless affair? Do you not get the sense that all the years he spent in his father's house, he's been grudging something, been unhappy inside? It only takes the occasion just to bring it out. Maybe he's been trying to earn his father's approval when he thought he should have had it anyway. Maybe he doesn't really have the love and the respect for his father that we would have thought he should have had as the older son. Maybe if he wasn't the older son, it might be a different story anyway. But he's going to get a double portion of the income. No fuss about me. No killing a goat for me. You know, the more you think about it, the more self-pitying it is. Why haven't you honored my service for you? Why haven't you honored my constant faithfulness? Now, Yes, a Christian can be like this, but make no mistake, this is a Pharisee. And you'll notice in verse 28 that he's angry, so angry that he won't go in. But he was angry and would not go in. Now, you'll notice that his father doesn't leave it at that. His father responds to him in verse 31, son, he says, You are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead, and he's alive again, and was lost, and is found. The key words for now are verse 31. Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. He calls His son, son. Sometimes I think that that's what makes people feel that that this elder son must be a Christian. But no, that's again to make a mistake right at the beginning. They were both sons on the same footing in the household at the start of the parable. Sons by covenant. The prodigal was too, just as much as this one. The fact that they're sons is a reference to the fact that they have been born into God's household. Remember, um, in the Old Testament, when you were born into Israel, you were joined to God's son. Because Israel as a nation was God's firstborn. His people were his firstborn, so you were joined with them. You became a son by covenant. Again, I think we did this last time but if you just go forward to the next chapter in chapter 16 and the very famous parable of the rich man and Lazarus you will remember that a large part of that parable turns on the fact of what sonship means and what it doesn't mean and the difference between being a son by covenant and being a spiritual son by adoption and so on. Um, we read in verse 24, that the the rich man cries. Now, it's Abraham he calls on, but it's the same principle at work. He cries and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. There's an appeal to the fatherhood of Abraham, a covenantal relationship, and therefore a covenantal relationship with God. And notice how Abraham responds to him in verse 25, son. And and here he's speaking to a man who's just gone to hell, a man who's in the bowels of a lost eternity. Son, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. In other words, the things that you deemed good, you got them. And likewise, Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And this man won't let this go. Even in verse 30, he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone will go to warn my brothers, if they'll return from the dead, they will repent. And of course, Abraham says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though someone rises from the dead. Son, God says, son. Ah, but does he not say, you are always with me? Yes, he does. But notice that he doesn't say, you will always be with me. What he says is, you are always with me and all that I have is yours and I mean that in my gracious providence I took you into the church of God in my gracious providence I baptized you you were raised and nurtured with Sabbath school teachers who taught you the word of God you had ministers that preached the truth and elders who counseled and admonished you To follow in the same. Everything I have to give in salvation. Is yours. You're here all the time. You've never gone away like this son. What are you complaining about? Uh, there's, There's nothing I'll give him. That I won't give you. There is a fullness of goodness. In store in my house. I deny you nothing. And what's more. God pleads with this elder son to come in. In verse 28, when we read that the elder son was angry and wouldn't go in, his father came out and he pleaded with him. Come in. Come in. Share the joy. And and take a full share of an inheritance which is given you. I, I can't tell by... I could easily obviously go into this aspect of things and it would be profitable to go into it in its own right because there's an element here of the Jew and the Gentile there's an element of the Jew as the elder brother who's sitting on these privileges all these years and suddenly these Gentiles are coming from nowhere and inheriting all the blessings of God and there's a complaint how can this be so we've carried the torch for hundreds of years That's in here too. But it's the same principle. And God is saying to this man, don't perish in your father's house. Don't go hungry in the house of bread. Your brother was so foolish that he never understood the glory of this house until he left it. But but for you, surely you see it because you've always been in it. But maybe you don't. I fear that you don't understand what my house is about. If if you can't really enter into the joy that is inside that house, then, then do you really know what it means to be a son of the Father? Do you really know what it means to be an Israelite? Not an external Israelite, circumcised externally, but an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. And no insincerity, a true child of Jacob. Is that, is that who you are, my son, or not? And in the same way, on behalf of the Father and on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, can I plead with you too? Uh, someone who's been maybe something like this. And all of a sudden, people in church are, are, are being converted and coming out. They had no background. They had no privileges like you. And instead of this moving you to say, well, how on earth am I being left behind? Rather, it's having another effect. It's an insidious effect. What you're saying is, these people are johnny come Lately on the scene. They never learnt their catechism. I can still recite it, you know. I can still recite a good chunk of it look at them there going to the Lord's table. Huh, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that so quickly. I take things far more seriously than they do. And suddenly, this is who you are. This is who you are. A character that is held up for our warning and for our admonition by Christ in the Gospels. Terrible. We remain outside the church, maybe, justifying ourselves when other people are going in. I've met plenty of these characters, let me say. They will spend hours criticizing everybody and everything that is inside the church, and they will do it from the position of being outside. And all along, there is some motivating factor there that they are somehow better than these people themselves. Uh, What they'll say is the reverse. Well, it's not a reverse technically, but what they'll say is something like this. They'll say, these people, you know, they think they're better than us. And the reality is that they themselves think themselves to be better than them. But they just don't see it that way. They don't see it that way. It'd be far better if this son had re-examined his own relationship to his father and his own relationship to his father's house, and his own relationship to his brother too. Far better if he had done that. With that, the parable closes. And I'm not quite closing yet, because we have to ask a strange question, which is, why does the parable close like this? It's hanging in the air. The parable is hanging in the air It's hanging in the air because the father says to the son, It was right that we should make merry and be glad because your brother was dead, he's alive again and was lost and is found. But what happened? What happened? Did the the elder brother go in or did he stay out? Did he move away? not the only part of scripture that leaves us in suspense the passage that we read at the beginning was in the book of jonah and the book of jonah ends on a question it's a question that god asks <clears throat> uh, when jonah is in a a huff when he's in a huff and he he's looking down from his um from his unholy hill And he's looking down on the city of Nineveh and he's angry. He's raging, raging that God could have shown mercy to people like this. And God says, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah says, yes, he says, it's right for me to be angry even to death. He says, I'm going to hold this point of view until I die. And then, of course, God uh, takes away the plant that, that God had allowed to grow overnight. He takes away the plant. And the Lord said to Jonah, you have had pity on the plant. You didn't labor for that plant. You didn't make it grow. It just came up in a night and perished in a night. And you feel sorry for the plant, Jonah. And you find fault with me for pitying Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't discern between their right hand and their left. And the book ends. <laughs> we want to know what did Jonah do. There are two possible alternatives realistically. One is that he comes down from his hill of complaint and that he joins in with the people of Nineveh and that he gives thanks to God for the grace that was shown the people of Nineveh. The other is that he just stays in a bad mood and goes back home. I'd like to think it was the former, and really for other reasons, I'm quite sure that it was the former. But it's exactly the same conundrum that we have with this elder brother. Did he go into the house, or did he stay outside? Well, at the time Christ gave the parable, he left it open because he wanted it left open. In other words, he's saying, I'm talking to you Pharisees. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you who are complaining about me sitting with the public and sinners. And the reason I'm leaving the parable open is because what you're going to do is open. You can either take what I'm telling you and embrace God's work or else you can reject God's work and make yourself Twofold more the children of hell than you are already. It's up to you. You either come in or you stay out. You can stay out justifying yourselves, judging other people, and being resentful about God, or you can simply come in because God is inviting you in and welcoming you in. And that, friends, is where the gospel leaves us to with a decision to make, a decision to make. And all of us here tonight and, and all gathered as God enables us electronically have this decision to make too. H- have you been outside the church for years exalting yourself, exhausting yourself, criticizing it? Maybe there has even been a touch of something better in that you feel mystified that other people seem to to go in and not yourself. Well, what hinders you? What hinders you? Believe yourself on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. And uh, the key to doing that in a way is to understanding that it's actually a humiliation for Christ to sit and eat with you too. Believe me, it is. Uh, the fact that Christ's, that Christ has fellowship with me is a remarkable thing to me and uh, don't wonder about other wonder about yourself and the fact that he's willing to eat and drink with you that'll be a source of praise forevermore let let us pray stand to pray <clears throat> oh lord our god uh, we pray that we might be impressed with the decision that uh, lies before us all and our great need to take it. And uh, the years can pass, and the decades too, and uh, we may still be in the proximity of this house and yet not appreciate it for what it is. And uh, so, Lord, we pray that we would hear the call of Christ and that we would recognize the Father's welcoming heart, and that we would come home, coming to ourselves, that we would arise and come to the Father, and how thankful we are that in all the years since these words were first spoken, he has not changed. But whoever comes to him through Christ, he will in no wise cast out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our last singing or reading is in Psalm 65 and at the beginning of the psalm. Psalm 65, from the beginning. We'll hear it sung to the tune St. Columba. Praise waits for thee in Zion, Lord. Now, this is a man who really values the house of God. He values it. To thee vows paid shall be, O thou that hearer art of prayer, all flesh shall come to thee. Now, it's not the iniquities of others that that really bothers him. It's his own. Iniquities, I must confess, prevail against me do. But as for our transgressions, them purge away shalt thou. And look how he values the house of God, blessed is the man whom thou dost choose, and makest approach to thee that he within thy courts, O Lord, may still a dweller be. We surely shall be satisfied with thy abundant grace, and with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy place. There's no way the psalmist would stay out of that house. I will hear these verses sung.